Good morning, everybody. I'm Kenny, one of the elders at Grace Fullerton. It's good to be with you this morning. Everyone's awake. You guys didn't, it was, it was slim pickings at 8 a.m. with that daylight saving. At the beginning, it was, it was about six people in here, and eventually they all came in. So anyway, I knew that the 9.30 would be much better. Um, as we start, I want to go touch on a verse that Walt started us with uh, this morning from Exodus. Uh, this question, who among the gods is like you? Majestic in holiness and working wonders. Struck me in the first service that throughout the gospel of Mark, really the whole first half of the gospel of Mark, Jesus is answering that question saying, I am. Who among the gods is like you? Majestic in holiness and working wonders. And Jesus in his words and his works is saying, I am. I speak with the authority of God. I forgive sin with the authority of God. I heal with the authority of God. I cast out demons with the authority of God. I raise back to life with the authority of God. I calm storms with the authority of God. I am God. I am king. We called this series The King and the Cross because really the whole first half of the Gospel of Mark is just saying Jesus is the king. Jesus is the king. And when we get to the second half of the Gospel of Mark, it's going to say, and the king is going to go to the cross. But we're still in this first half. Jesus is king. He is Lord of all, like we sing. Um, I'll hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall. Bring forth the royal diadem and crown him. Think about that for a minute. Jesus is already king. He's already been crowned, right? Philippians 2 says now he has been exalted, right? To this place of authority and dominion and kingship over everything. So then why do we sing to one another, bring forth the royal diadem and crown him, right? So we're singing, Mike, bring forth the crown and crown him Lord, right? We're singing this to one another. Joe, crown him Lord. What do we mean by saying crown Jesus if he's already wearing the crown? Anybody? What do you think? He's already wearing it. Why would we tell each other to crown him Lord? What does that mean then to say crown Jesus Lord? Acknowledge it, right? Agree with it. Enthusiastically glorify him and worship and bend your knee, right? Join with all the angels who are prostrate before him and you crown him Lord. Acknowledge his crown, right? Understand that Jesus wears the crown. Understand it, right? truly understand? Do we understand truly who we're dealing with in Jesus? We need to keep asking ourselves that question. The answer is no. Yes and no. We do, but we don't. I want to give an illustration. My father-in-law, Jim Collins, was uh, uh, for 40 years in the military, Army and then Army Reserve. And when he retired, he was a two-star general, major general. So I think I proposed to Betsy on the weekend that he was pinned with his first star as Brigadier General. That's a little intimidating, right? Can I marry your daughter? And he's a one-star general in the army. But um, so as I was getting to know Betsy and we were dating and then got engaged, I knew a lot about my father-in-law. I knew that he was important. I knew that he had power and authority and leadership. He served in Vietnam and he served in Desert Storm, um, oversaw thousands of troops in Desert Storm and orchestrated complex, you know, uh, movement of troops and equipment off of ships into the land and then back on. And I mean, he, is, he was the man. In fact, the weekend we got engaged, we got engaged on a Friday 
And then Saturday, we all went down to Camp Pendleton to the, for the ceremony where he got pinned with his first star. I don't know where they pin it. I can't remember up here or here, uh, but uh, he got it. And I remember, I, I understood who he was, but we pull up to this parade field at Camp Pendleton and we get out of the car and we get escorted in, Betsy uh, and, and I and her parents. And, you know, he's in his full dress, you know, like uniforming. It's awesome. And we get to this parade field and there are hundreds of soldiers standing. There's all these people seated and then hundreds of soldiers in formation standing in the hot sun out on the parade, you know, pl- uh, asphalt, just sweating, not moving, waiting until he finally gets there, gets up on the podium, stands up and looks at them and says, at ease. And they all go. I remember this sense of, oh, <laughs> this, this is going to be my father, this is my future father-in-law right here. And then he went on, he got a second star. His last four years was commanding officer of Fort Douglas in Salt Lake City during the Winter Olympics. And, and during the Winter Olympics, a lot of his, his troops there at Fort Douglas were responsible with security and orchestration of that whole two weeks of Winter Olympics craziness, right? So I understood who my father-in-law was. So then why could we then go on family vacations and I could second guess him about how we're going to pack the back of a car? Seriously. We go up to Brian Head for, the week, you know, for a week to go camp and ski. And in my mind, I'm arguing with him about how we should pack the car, right? Or, or second guessing his leadership decisions as we're on a family vacation, which is crazy, right? I mean, he's, he's major general. I think he's got this. There's this ability to understand who he is and at the same time, experientially, not really act as if he is who he is, right? Does that make sense? I understand, but at the same time, I can say, I don't really understand if I'm, if I'm responding to him that way. Well, this is what's happening in the Gospel of Mark. And in this passage, we're going to see this morning, even with his disciples, as much as they know and understand and have had front row seats to see, they still don't entirely understand. Mark says it. Look, in in chapter six, Mark, that's where we're gonna be. Two miracle stories, feeding of the 5,000, and then he walks on water, and and the disciples have seen this right up close and personal. He's gonna even use them in the first miracle. And verses 51 and 52, Mark says this. After they saw him walking on the water, they were utterly astounded. That's sort of a negative astonishment. It's like, wait, wait, I can't believe. How did you do that? And he says the reason that was their reaction was they didn't understand about the loaves. And their hearts were still hard. They were hardened still. They were slow to understand. They knew that miracles had happened, but still this understanding of who Jesus is that translates into how they respond to him, they're still slow to understand. And so are we. And... (laughs) It's worse for us because we even have more evidence than they had to go on at this point. We've got the cross and the resurrection and the early church and all this evidence of who Jesus is and we can still be so slow to understand who Jesus is. So this morning, outline. Here it is. Three lessons about Jesus that we are slow to understand. First two, I'm gonna get from our first story here and then we'll pick up the last one in the second scene. So look at Mark 6, verse 30. The backstory is from last week, if you remember, Jesus had sent the 12 out in pairs to actually go and minister like he has been ministering, preaching the same message and with his authority to cast out demons and to heal and work wonders. And so verse 30, here we go. We're getting a report. The apostles returned to Jesus and they told him all that they'd done and taught. 
And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now, many saw them going and they recognized them and they ran there on foot from all the towns and they got there ahead of him, them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place. The hour is now late. Send them away into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. They said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go see. And when they'd found out, they said, five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. And so they did. They sat down in groups by hundreds and fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and he said a blessing. And he broke the loaves and he gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all and they all ate and they were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Matthew ends up saying, I think that uh, that's not counting women and children. So who knows? If you just double that, triple that, 10,000, 15,000, maybe more, all ate and were satisfied. Two things about Jesus here. Number one, he is the compassionate good shepherd. Not just a compassionate good shepherd, but the unique good shepherd that God has promised to send Let's look at the story, the way it unfolds. The apostles come back and they're high-fiving each other. You won't believe what we did and we taught Jesus. It was amazing, right? They're reporting back. And he says, come away for a while. You need to retreat. It says they hadn't even had leisure to eat. So many people have been coming or going that just like Jesus now, they were exhausted and weary. And Jesus says, let's get away from the crowds for a while. Let's take a break. But they're unsuccessful. Verse 33 Some people see them leave and figure out where they're headed and they begin running to get there first. And it says from all the towns people gathered. So you picture this crowd moving fast and as they pass through villages, they're just collecting people. Hey, where are you going? Oh, Jesus coming. Oh, I'm gonna go with you. And they all get there ahead of Jesus. Look at verse 34. When Jesus went ashore, he saw a great crowd. What was he hoping to see? A desolate place. (laughs) What does he see? A great crowd. And he, pause right there. If that was you, I already picked on Mike. Phil Watson, if that was you, you're one of these 12 and you get to the shore or you're Jesus and you get to the shore and you step out on the shore and you see a great crowd, what would this next sentence say? And when Phil saw the great crowd, he, okay, big, big sigh of exhaustion and weariness. Rick, when Rick saw the great crowd, he, (laughs) he didn't even step on shore. He just, (laughs) he would have just like that, right? How about you? When you saw the great crowd in all of your exhaustion, you groan, (laughs) roll your eyes, swear under your breath. 
when Jesus saw the great crowd, he had compassion on them. Literally, his, he, he felt for them from the gut. His heart went out to them. He had compassion. And it says why. It says because they were like a sheep. They were like sheep without a shepherd. What was it that made him forget how hungry and tired he was and spend the whole day teaching them until the sun's going to go down? It's because as he looked at them, he, they, he realized these are sheep without a shepherd. Where's that sort of language come from? A few places in the Old Testament, but Ezekiel 34 is probably the clearest. Turn back there for, for a minute. In Ezekiel 34, God sends the prophet Ezekiel to call out the spiritual leaders of Israel because they are failing utterly. And he doesn't pull any punches. He says, Ezekiel 34, 1, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat and you clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you've not strengthened, the sick you've not healed, the injured you've not bound up, the strayed you've not brought back, the lost you've not sought, and with force and harshness you've ruled them. And so they were scattered because there was no shepherd and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered all over the mountains and on every high hill. It's a reference to all these other hills where shrines and other worship altars and temples were set up to all these other idols. He said, you let my sheep just wander off to every high hill. My sheep were scattered over the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. Spiritual leaders had neglected the sheep, the people of Israel, and they'd wandered. They just wandered from the Lord. Notice some of the things it says about these shepherds. I think Jesus in in the Gospel of Mark is seeing the exact same things, right? Ezekiel says, these shepherds haven't strengthened the weak or healed the sick or bound up the injured. And I think of Mark 3 and this man with a withered hand in the synagogue and and Jesus has compassion and he's gonna heal him on the Sabbath. And where are the shepherds of Israel in that scene? Are they saying, yes, someone's gonna heal this poor man. No, they're conspiring. They're, they're watching for an angle. If Jesus heals this man, we can catch him. He broke the Sabbath right there, right? No compassion for this, this poor guy with a withered hand. Ezekiel says the bad shepherds uh, haven't gone off after those straying from the Lord to seek and rescue them. And it makes me think of Levi, this tax collector, sitting at the tax collecting booth doing the very thing that's made him hated, being a traitor to his people. He is a sinner, right? Capital S. And Jesus goes and he calls him, come follow me. Leave your tax collecting stand. Come follow me. And he goes to his house and he has a meal with a whole bunch of the rest of them. And where are the shepherds of Israel? They're watching from the outside with their eyebrows raised at Jesus eating with those types of people, right? They're not going out after those types of people. They're just judging those types of people. And the irony is in that scene, if you remember, they are more like those types of people than the people Jesus is eating with, right? Ezekiel says these shepherds have ruled with force and harshness over the people. I think of 
In the gospel of Matthew, Jesus says this about the leaders of Israel. They preach, but they don't practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay them on people's shoulders, traditions and rules, and you gotta keep it all, and you gotta keep it perfectly, and they tie them up, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. And I think we're here in Mark chapter six, and Jesus has just been going from town to town and crowd to crowd, and he sees this great crowd, and this is exactly what he sees. It still hasn't changed. These sheep have no shepherd to remove the burden and bring healing and hope and rest and leadership. He just sees them scattered and wandering and helpless. Matthew in his gospel says they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He says these people are harassed and helpless. And in Ezekiel, he says, one day God will raise up a good shepherd. Let me finish that. I want want us to to hear the the rest of this. Look at verse 11. God says, behold, I myself will search for my sheep and I'll seek them out. Like a shepherd seeks out his flock when he's among his sheep that have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep and I'll rescue them from all the places where they've been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I'll bring them out from the peoples and I'll gather them from the countries and I'll bring them into their own land and I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. They will lie down in good grazing land and on rich pasture they'll feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep and I will make them lie down, declares the Lord. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. And how is God gonna do that? Skip down to verse 22. 23, I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord, I've spoken. Jesus sees these crowds and he sees Ezekiel 34 still going on. These people need a shepherd and and he is this shepherd. And so what does he do? He's exhausted. His compassion trumps his exhaustion and he teaches them many things. He's the opposite of the bad shepherds. The bad shepherds put their needs first at the expense of the sheep and Jesus shows up and he sets aside his needs. He's hungry, he's tired and he feeds the sheep. He teaches them truth. He, He gives them good news to lead them out of harassed and helpless and into freedom. He teaches them all day long. He does it by teaching things like, come to me, all you who are weary and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. My burden is light. I will give, come to me, you will find a rest for your soul. That's the sort of thing Jesus is teaching these harassed and helpless sheep. Come to me, turn to me, believe in me, turn from your sin, follow me, repent of your sin. I can forgive your sin. I can take your guilt away. And why can he say that? because he is gonna set aside even more than his need for food and his need for rest for his sheep. The good shepherd's gonna lay down his life for his sheep.
He's not just going to humble himself and become a man, but he's going to become a man unto death and he's going to lay down his life. He's going to become the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the sheep. That's our good shepherd. That's his ultimate act of shepherding the sheep is laying down his life. He's the compassionate good shepherd. And aren't we slow to understand that? If, you, if you're a Christian, if you grow up in the church, we all understand that. But then again, we don't. And, it's, and, and you can tell by the way we often respond and think of God. When I am skeptical of, of Jesus' uh, forgiveness, like we sang, the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives, his forgiveness will come instantly when I repent. When I'm skeptical of that in my heart, that tells me I really don't understand that he is the compassionate good shepherd, right? I understand it, but I don't. When the circumstances of my life make me doubt his goodness, I'm slow to understand he's the good shepherd. He cares deeply. So that's the first lesson I want us to see here, and we are slow to learn it. That's something we should turn into prayer and talk about at your grace groups tonight. Where do you see how slow you are to know and understand and trust that Jesus is good shepherd? And like Eric's passage a couple of weeks ago, don't fear, just believe. That's what he keeps calling. Don't fear, just believe. I'm the good shepherd. So that's number one. Number two, lesson that we are slow to learn. Jesus isn't limited by our lack just sum up the story. It's late. They're in a desolate place. There's not, you know, restaurants nearby, no Chick-fil-A. Even if it was, it might've been a Sunday and then they would be closed. Sun's going down. And, uh, and the disciples were getting hungry, I'm sure too. They're probably thinking of their own stomachs and they're like, oh my goodness, Jesus, seriously, it's, it's getting dark. And, and they come and, 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 and they say, Jesus, just send the sheep away to go feed themselves. Which is kind of funny after we just read Ezekiel 34, right? He, he said, Jesus, just, just let them go feed themselves. And Jesus says, no, you give them something to eat. So pause right here. I think Mark's given us a hint in verse 30, the context and what is Jesus up to here when he sees this opportunity to teach the disciples something. Verse 30, they've just come back from ministering in his name with his power and authority. God has done, worked miracles through them and they've come back and rejoiced over it and reported back, yes. And Jesus right here, as they come and say, Jesus, we gotta go, 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 go tell them to go feed themselves. Jesus, he's an opportunity to teach them something again, to reinforce the lesson that they should have already learned is that he will feed his sheep through them even with all their insufficiency. So look back at the story, verse 37. After the, he says, you give them something to eat, they get sarcastic with Jesus, I think. Okay, so we're supposed to go take 200 days worth of wages and go find somewhere that has that much bread and drop that kind of coin on bread just to feed all these people for one day? That's your best plan, Jesus? And he sort of says, well, no, that would just be silly. Here's the plan. Go find out how much food we have on hand. I mean, I wonder, the disciples are like, really? You think there's enough bread around here that, that we could pull this off? Okay, and, the, and it says they go, and they go and find out, right? Let's find it here, verse 30, uh, 37, or 38, he says, um, go and see. And when they had found out, they come back, five. <laughs> he says, go find out how much do we got? I'll tell you how much we got, Jesus, five loaves. And, and two fish. 
One kid, we, we talked him out of his lunch. Here it is right here. That's what we got. And Jesus doesn't say, all right, we'll give the kid back his lunch. Here we go. He says, all right. He takes, he says, now have everyone sit down. I mean, wonder if the disciples were like, at what point is Jesus going to go? Gotcha, right? But he, he just, they keep going with it. Okay, now have everyone sit down orderly like and have them sit down on the green grass. There's something about that. I can't prove it, but it seems like Mark is wanting to connect some dots here. The shepherd is going to have everyone, command everyone to sit down on the green grass and he's about to feed them. Through the disciples. So they do. They have everyone sit down. And it says he takes, verse 41, the five loaves and the two fish. He didn't have to, right? Whether or not he started with the five loaves and two fish or not would have had the same end result. Are we all in agreement on that? Okay, so Jesus has a reason that he's going to start with this little bit that they brought and then do the miracle. He wants to teach them something about his ability to feed his sheep through totally insufficient resources, right? This miracle is about Jesus providing a ridiculous amount of food with zero to nothing, little to nothing to work with through his disciples. So where, where are we at? Okay, so he, uh, he takes it and he wants to make it really clear where this food's about to come from. So he takes it and he looks up to heaven and he gives a blessing. He prays before they eat. And then he takes the five loaves and he breaks it up and he gives it to each one of the disciples. He says, all right, go pass that out. And he breaks up the fish, go pass that out. Come back to me when you're out. And apparently they do. And verse 42, totally understated. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of fish. Three, three details there that just make you go, this is an amazing miracle. First of all, they all ate. 5,000 men, maybe double that, triple that or more with kids. I mean, this is thousands and thousands of people, right? And they all ate. Not just a nibble. They didn't all just get a lick, right? He says they all ate and were satisfied. They all got full. They all got stuffed. We call that food baby in my family. That's and I do. When you leave, you know, Blaze Pizza and you're like, oh man, you like pop the button at the top of your pants. They're all satisfied. He feeds them well. They're all laying on the grass full and the disciples go around and he says there's 12 baskets left over. I think the reason that Mark wants us to know there's 12 baskets is so that we get it. Every disciple got the lesson, right? Some of them didn't go back and go, well, I'm out. No, everyone came back and had leftovers. Judas had leftovers in his basket. Those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. The point, Jesus is not limited by our lack. What he intends to do through his disciples and then through his church is not limited by what we don't have. We are insufficient. Paul one time says, who is sufficient for these things? He's talking about the, 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 uh, the mission of God that the church is entrusted with, the stewardship of the gospel. Who is sufficient? And the answer is, you're not. That's the point. And Jesus says, but I can provide more than sufficiently through you. Two implications. Number one, I think it's very simple. We're called to offer what, you, what we have for Jesus' use, right? That's the way it works. Paul says to each one, he's entrusted gifts, not all the gifts, various ones as he sees fit so that as we all use them and we offer them and we, and we use them 
to the end of leading people to Jesus and helping the church grow, he will cause the whole body to build itself up in love. Every little bit that he's already given us anyway, we simply offer that and then Jesus works through that and he blesses it and he does what we are at the end of the day insufficient for and he does it abundantly. So offer what little you have to him. No matter how meager or insufficient, Jesus is delighted to show his glory by producing fruit when it looks like, where did that come from, right? On the other hand, let's not boast in our five loaves and two fish either. Isn't it amazing? If you have, if you have ever in your life been involved in ministry, using your gifts, serving in some way, and how quickly you can go from a feeling of total utter dependence on God. I can't do this, God. Please show up. And then after the fact, you're like, that was not too bad, right? That was me right there. I've done that after preaching. I've done that after, you know, talking with someone and praying, going into a counseling situation. Like, I have no idea what to say. Help me. Just give me some wisdom. Help me to not put my foot in my mouth and come out of a conversation going, Lord, that, that was amazing. And on the drive home, I'm like, well, you know, I was pretty smart what I said right there. I mean, you know, that's our five loaves and our two fish. So let's not quickly go back and be boastful about what little we have. And remember, no, the sufficiency comes through Jesus, right? Not the loaves and the fish. All right. Jesus isn't limited by our lack. Got to move on. We got one more cool story here. So Jesus is the good shepherd. We're slow to understand that. He's not limited by what we lack. We're slow to understand that. Third, I want to say it like this. Jesus is Lord. He's sovereign over painful headway. That's a phrase that comes right out of this scene here. And I think it's, it's really kind of the key of what Jesus wants to teach him here. Look at verse 45. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he'd taken leave of him, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. They were just straining at the oars. John's gospel says they were rowing for about three or four miles into a strong wind. And he sees them. And then again, understated, about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. (laughs) He just walked on the sea. And he meant to pass them by. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and they cried out for they all saw him and were terrified But immediately he spoke to them and said, take heart, it's I, don't be afraid. And he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased and they were utterly astounded. For they didn't understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Jesus shows them that he is Lord over, sovereign over painful headway. What is a hindrance to them? They just can't get there. Rowing for hours at night. It's the fourth watch of the night. It's like just before the sun's coming up. And Jesus just comes walking on the water and he intends to pass them by. What is he, you know, I was thinking about pass them by. Some commentators say, well, did he, did he mean to actually get by without them seeing, just show up so that when they arrive, he's there. That's my one of my son's favorite games when we're in two cars and our family, Levi likes to come with me and Lily Mae goes with Betsy and he always wants me to take a different route and speed so that we can get there first and park in the spot Betsy usually does and be sitting in our front seat chairs when she pulls up like, oh, you know, what took you so long? And 
Is that what's going on here? Is Jesus intending to pass them by unseen? Or is he actually intending to pass them by walking on the water so they can see him? I think it's that. I think he intends to be seen. In fact, it could even be that, you know, the language here is very similar to when Moses or Elijah get these glimpses of God's glory and God causes his glory to pass by them so they they get a glimpse of God's glory. That might be going on here too, that Jesus intends to pass by them and show them something jaw-dropping. While they are straining at the oars, he is going to walk by. A couple of illustrations. One, um, I, I run. I don't love running, but it's good for me, so I do it. And I run a lot of times over at Fullerton Loop from the courthouse trail up around the lake, which is a great place to run. Um, but it's also uh, a place where Fullerton High School uh, cross-country team likes to run as well. It's right there by the school, and the coaches always send them out to, you know, just get their warm-up. And this happens to me all the time. I got my headphones on, and I'm just sucking wind, and at my 10-mile-an-hour pace, you know, you know, 10, no, 10-mile-an-hour, 10 that's really fast. 10-minute mile pace. Very different. And all of a sudden, like 20 high school guys, all like no body fat, lean, their shirts are off. I'll never be able to run with a shirt off. It'd be dangerous. And they just go flying by me like I'm just standing still. And that's where I usually pull my move where I look at my watch like I'm just on my cool down run like this, like, <laughs> like this. And, but, I, you know, I'm embarrassed. I'm like humiliated. What's like grueling for me, they're not even, they're talking to each other and laughing and, you know, and uh, no contest, right? I also thought, I was thinking about Wile E. Coyote and the Roadrunner cartoons. And there's always these moments like this where Wile E. Coyote is using every possible resource that the Acme catalog can provide him to try to catch the roadrunner. And there's always a scene like he's behind a big rock and he's waiting and he's strapping on his like rocket skates, you know? And, you know, it's got giant like TNT on the back, whatever. And the roadrunner comes by and he lights him off and it's like, there's a scene where he's just like straining, you know what I'm talking about? And it's like, and all of a sudden it'll like slow down to like freeze frame, right? In that moment, the roadrunner kind of looks back and goes, boom, boom. You know, just takes off and you realize, oh, he was never going to catch this, you know, this contract. Okay, I'm sure that Jesus didn't intend to walk by and go, boom, boom. But here they are just straining and Jesus intends to pass by them. He's he's walking on water and he's walking into the wind and he's going to pass them. Painful headway is nothing to Jesus. It's really similar to the message of the lobes, right? Total insufficient resources, that's nothing to Jesus. What's causing you painful headway, that's nothing to Jesus, which makes it then all the more remarkable that Jesus, for most of his life, just lives with painful headway, doesn't he? We don't see Jesus walking across the water all the time. Hey, it's faster this way, right? And making bread from rocks and stuff. No, by and large, Jesus suffers and struggles and, and, and gets tired like we do and get, goes hungry like we do. And he's tempted like we do. And he, he ends up suffering painful headway to save us, right? In the garden, he says, Lord, if there is any, Father, is there any way other than this? And then he says, not my will, but yours. Jesus doesn't sidestep painful headway. He's acquainted with it. He goes through it. He endures it. He's sympathetic high priest because of this. It's nothing. The painful headway to Jesus is like a stroll on the sea. But nevertheless, he goes through painful headway to save us. Two implications. 
as we close. One, wait, we didn't finish the story. We got to finish the story. So anyway, they freak out and they, even though it might look like Jesus, well, what's going on here? They, they, they start shrieking. Grown men are shrieking in terror in the boat because they think it's a ghost or a spirit or something, you know, magical. And that's when I think Jesus changes course and he doesn't pass them by and he gets in the boat and says, calm down, it's I, don't be afraid, right? And then the, the wind ceases, right? Two implications. One, in all our painful headway, I think that we should take our cares to Christ in prayer. I think we're encouraged to do that. Whatever situations in life that you would say, this is painful headway. Or maybe you wouldn't even use the word headway. It's just painful, not making any headway. One, we should take our cares to Christ. He has the authority and power to make winds cease. And we're allowed to ask him. We can pray and ask Jesus to intercede. And sometimes he does, doesn't he? He's able. We're encouraged to cast our cares on him because he cares for us, because he's also a good shepherd. The good shepherd, painful headway is nothing to him. So let's ask him. But secondly, when Jesus doesn't turn our painful headway into wind cease, trust him. There's something about suffering that really makes us forget the first lesson that he's good shepherd. It's hard to trust that he's a compassionate good shepherd. But this was the thought to me this week. This this question came to my mind. I thought, do I really think that a good shepherd who's so personally, personally acquainted with pain would then use it carelessly or thoughtlessly or unnecessarily in my life. He understands how painful pain is, Jesus does. I don't think then if he chooses to use it in my life and in your life that we should conclude that he would be thoughtful with that. It wouldn't matter to him that he wouldn't feel and care and feel concerned for us and do it unnecessarily. It ought to encourage our trust. He sweat blood praying in the garden. He knows pain. So if he has purposes for it, we can trust that he's good. He's not asking us to do anything he hasn't done himself, right? So we need to turn this into prayer and close here. Jesus, compassionate, good shepherd, not limited by our lack, and he's Lord over painful headway. Let's pray. Jesus, we believe these things help us in our unbelief. We know them, and yet so often we forget. But I pray that because we gather this morning, that your spirit would help us to understand just a bit more, that we would react to things this week, respond to life as it comes at us in trust and without fear. Look into our good shepherd, in Jesus' name, amen.